Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. That is what we're talking about on Sunday mornings, week in and week out. In the Gospel of Luke, we're finding different ways that Luke illustrates that and depicts that for us, different stories from the life of Jesus. And this morning, we come to a unique story. There is an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along as we talk about the transfiguration of Jesus with three of his disciples present, and then a few things that happened after that. I'll be honest with you, I don't have a lot of funny stories for you this morning. I don't have a lot of uh, really highly interesting uh, jokes or things that are going to make you laugh or things you never heard before. As I've studied this passage, as I've looked at Luke 9, uh, I find myself every week, as I study and get ready to preach, I find myself during the week thinking about the passage, thinking about some of the characters, thinking about what's going on. Uh, this is one I just haven't been able to get out of my brain all week. I've just been thinking about it all week, mowing the yard, thinking about it, cleaning up the house, thinking about it, doing the dishes, thinking about it, just thinking about what actually happened in the verses we're about to read. I don't want you to think that there are any unimportant passages in the Gospel of Luke, because there aren't, but I do want you to understand this one is really important. This is a big one. This is a, a weighty passage. When you really slow down, and I know it's familiar to many of us, but when you slow down and you read what Luke is telling us, it just feels a little bit more weighty than some of the other stories we've read in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to jump in and talk about it. I want to give you the big idea before we read it. And the big idea is this. Jesus has always been, is now, and will always be incomparably glorious. He has always been, he is now, and he will always be incomparably glorious. And once you fill that in, find Luke chapter 9, verse 28, and we're going to read down to verse 45. The Word of God says this. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying these, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them, met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. 
And behold, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand the saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might, might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Let's pray. Father, you are the Holy One and you are the Worthy One. You are the one who can move mountains, who can do miracles. You are the one who sent your Son to take on flesh, to walk on this earth, to seek us and to save us. And as we get a small glimpse in this passage of the incomparable glory of Jesus, Father, we pray that we would leave changed. That we would understand something new or something deeper, that we would feel it in our bones about who Jesus is and what he came here to do. Father, forgive us for our thoughts about you and about Jesus that are belittling Father, help us to have a big view of you. Help us to have a glorious view of who Jesus is. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Start with me in the, in the verse we looked at last week. And my plan is just to really kind of walk through this passage and talk to you about what Luke is telling us. Look at Luke 9.27, the last verse we looked at last week. It says, Jesus speaking, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Lots of debate in commentaries about what that means. These people are not going to die until they see the kingdom of God come. Some people say he's talking about his resurrection from the dead. Some people think he's talking about his ascension up to heaven. Some people think he's talking about the day of Pentecost where the Spirit comes. I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke speak fairly clearly when they follow that statement with the story of the transfiguration. Jesus says, some of you standing here will not taste death. You will not die until you see the kingdom come. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, immediately after that, Jesus is transfigured before some of his disciples. And so I think what Jesus predicted in verse 27 is coming true in our passage this morning. And look at verse 28. Eight days later, he took Peter, John, and James, and he went up the mountain. Now, if you're Peter, John, and James, and Jesus says, come with me, the nine, remember there's 12 total apostles, the nine are staying here, you guys are coming with me. At this point, your head is ginormous. Because just a couple of days ago, Jesus was getting ready to heal Jairus' daughter. You remember this story? And he went to Jairus' house, and probably there was just not enough room for everyone to go in because the rooms were not massive rooms. And so he looked at the 12, and he said, Peter, James, John, you guys come with me. And they got to go in with Jairus and his wife and the little girl who was dead, and they got to see Jesus raise that girl from the dead. Amazing. The nine didn't get to see it. They had to hear about it from the three. And now Jesus says, Peter, James, and John, why don't you guys come with me? What are the rest of the guys supposed to do? 
Doesn't matter. You stay here. You guys are coming with me. We're going on a retreat up the mountain. If you're Peter, James, and John, you think this is the greatest, right? I have achieved semi-stardom. I'm off the C list of celebrities. I'm not up to Jesus on the A list, but I'm definitely on the B list. I'm moving my way up. And then they get there and Jesus says, we're going to pray. You mean we're going to say a prayer before we go? No, we are going to pray. You mean while we're on the trip, we're going to say a prayer? No, no, no. The point of the trip is to go on the mountain and to pray. Their response was about like most of us would have responded. Boredom. We know they were bored because Luke says when this amazing thing is happening, they're doing what? Sleeping, like most of us would probably be tempted to do. They're not thrilled about this prayer meeting, but Jesus takes them up the hill, and they're sleeping, and Jesus is praying. And while Jesus is praying, verse 29 happens. Look at verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. I don't know about you, but I read that and I would love to have a few more details. What? Tell me more. He's praying, his face is altered, and his clothes become dazzling white. I, you know, we live in a visual society where you carry around a, a TV screen in your pocket all the time. And you don't have to have a description of what something looks like. You can just get it out and watch it for yourself. And I read that and I just want to say, I want to see, see what you're talking about. And if I can't see that, I want you to describe it more than that. But that's all Luke says. And that's all Matthew or Mark say. His face is altered and his clothes become dazzling white. One word used in the Gospels about his clothing uh, can be used in reference to the sun. Another word used in another place about his clothing can be used in reference to lightning. It was amazing. He's, he's changed. He's transformed. He's transfigured. Right? The veil of flesh is ripped away and they get a glimpse of Jesus in all of his glory. And Luke just very, very restrained in not describing it, not using spectacular language. He's just very calm and he just simply says... His face was altered. His clothes became dazzling white. And the specifics about what he looked like and how that all happened are not so important. What happened and why it happened is important. And this is on your outline, and we'll put this on the screen. What happened? Well, Peter, James, and John caught a brief glimpse of the incomparable glory of Jesus. Glory that has always been. Glory that is now. And glory that will always be. They caught a glimpse of the Son of Man and what he looked like back in John 1.1 where the Word creates everything. They caught a glimpse of that just for a second. They caught a glimpse of the true glory of Jesus that had been veiled by human flesh. And they caught a, a brief glimpse of the glory of Jesus in what he's going to be like, look like, sound like, all of it when he comes back in the end. They just get a little preview of all of that. That's what happened. Now, I wish I could tell you for certainty why it happened. You'd be amazed when you read commentaries, the different theories about why this is happening, why God is doing this. Here's my best guess at why this happened. It took place, the event took place, to teach the disciples about Jesus and to encourage Jesus before he goes to the cross. 
to teach the disciples something about who Jesus truly is and to encourage Jesus before he goes to the cross. We know it's monumental because the Father, God the Father, speaks from heaven. The last time that happened is when Jesus was baptized. And the voice from heaven said, this is my son, I am well pleased with him. Now the same voice out of the cloud, this is my son, listen to him. Teaching the disciples and encouraging Jesus. Then you get to verse 30 and the story just gets better. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Two men that are both heroes in the Jewish faith. Men who had significant meetings with God on a mountain, and now they add this to their resume. Men who together sort of summarized the Jewish view of the scriptures. They called it the law and the prophets. Moses the lawgiver, Elijah the great prophet. So the, the scriptures are represented, the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah are both there. Both of them left this earth in unique ways. Moses, buried by God, not man. Elijah, you remember, riding a chariot to heaven. If you want to read those stories, you can look in Deuteronomy 34 and 2 Kings 2. Deuteronomy 34, 2 Kings 2. Let me just make one point about verse 30. Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Here's my point. This life is not all there is. I may say that and you may think, duh, that's obvious. We all believe that. We don't all believe that. Not everyone in our society believes that. Some people in our society say, you only live once and then that's the end. You better make the most of it now. That's not the biblical view. The biblical view says you live in this life once and then you live in the next life forever. Think about this. Moses and Elijah, these guys have been dead and gone for centuries. The reality is they're not dead or gone. They're still Moses and still Elijah and they just show up one day. Centuries have passed, and they're the same two guys. They're still around. They haven't gone anywhere. They haven't aged. They're there. Jesus is transformed. Moses and Elijah show up. If you live 50 years, if you live 70 years, you live 90 years, that's a good life. You live like Moses, you live to be 120 years, that's a really long life. At some point, your life here ends, but that's not the end of you. There's something else. There's another life. There's another world. You need to acknowledge that. You need to live now like it's not just you live once and that's the end, so make the most of it, but you live now in this world and you're in preparation. You're getting ready for the next life, for the next world. Verse 31, it gets better. Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus, and they appear in glory, and Luke is the only one who says this. Matthew doesn't mention it, Mark doesn't mention it. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Literally, that word right there, some of you may see this in a footnote. In my Bible, there's a footnote. That word departure literally is the word exodus. Jesus is transfigured, Moses shows up, Elijah shows up, they're talking, and they're talking about Jesus' exodus that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Just makes your mind want to explode. Moses, who led an exodus 
from Egypt is talking to Jesus who's about to lead a new exodus. Moses, who led God's people from slavery to sin and death, uh, excuse me, from Pharaoh, is about to talk to Jesus about leading his people from slavery to sin and death. Moses, who leads his people uh, from Egypt to the promised land, talking to Jesus, who's about to lead his people and provide a way, an exodus for them to the next life, to heaven. And they're just there talking about it, about his exodus. And we know that what they're really talking about is his death. Here's how we know. Peter, remember Peter is there. He's kind of groggy, but he's there. Peter wrote a book later in life. It's called 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 15, Peter says something. He's talking about the fact that he is about to die. But guess what? He doesn't say, I'm about to die. He says, I'm about to depart. Literally, I'm about to go on an exodus. I am leaving this world, going to the next world. Where did Peter get that kind of language from? We heard Moses and Jesus talking about it. Talking about his death. Talking about his departure. Talking about his exodus. Now, this is where my mind has been all week. And to me, this, this is just, makes my head explode. Jesus is transfigured. Moses and Elijah show up. Moses and Elijah live in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, right? They are saved by grace through faith, just like you and I are. But there's one difference. Moses and Elijah look forward in faith to the one saving event that God would do for his people. They look forward in faith. They were waiting on it. We stand on this side of the cross and we look back to it. We understand a little bit more than they did because we're looking back with hindsight, but we're looking to the same thing. Moses and Elijah looking forward in faith to what God was going to do. We look back to it. Now put yourself in the shoes of Moses and Elijah. For all of your life, you're looking forward and you're waiting. God's going to do something to save his people. Moses is thinking God's going to send another prophet to speak to his people. Elijah's saying God's going to do something so that his people don't chase after idols anymore. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. And they both live very long lives. And then they die, but they really don't die because they're still around. And year after year, decade after decade, century after century goes by, and they're in heaven, but they're waiting, waiting, waiting. What's going to happen? When is it going to happen? Where is it going to happen? They're waiting. And then one day God says, Moses, Elijah, go down there and talk to Jesus about what's about to happen. You remember, Moses had never been in the promised land. He begged God to let him go in. God said, nope, you can see it, but you're not going in. Now he gets to go in, puts his feet in Israel. And he gets to talk to Jesus about the cross. Again, I read that and say, can I have a few more details? What, what did they talk about? Who did all the talking? Was it Moses? Was it Jesus? Was it Elijah? How did the conversation go? We don't know, but they're talking about the cross. And Moses and Elijah have been waiting millennia for this one event. And now it is months away, and they're talking to Jesus about it. Now put yourself in Jesus' shoes as much as you can in this story. You're Jesus. You've spent some time now telling people about what's going to happen, about who you are, about what you have come to do. No one gets it, right? Jesus has been preaching. He's been teaching. 
honestly, no one really has a clue at this point. The disciples, totally confused. Trying to wrap their arms around it, getting bits and pieces here and there, but they don't have a clue. They're just on the, on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus, and they get off after he steals the storm, and they say what? Who is this guy? They don't know. What about the, the crowds? They certainly don't have a clue who Jesus is. They know he's some kind of miracle worker, that he can do some neat stuff, but they don't have a clue. There's the religious leaders. They think Jesus is a blasphemer, a, a lunatic, a bad teacher. The only people who know who Jesus is and what he's come to do at this point are who? The demons. And they oppose him every step of the way. Now, Jesus gets to talk to two people, Moses and Elijah. And they've been let in on the plan, and they know what's about to happen. And Jesus is talking to them. I'm going to Jerusalem. There will be an exodus. I'm going to die. And he's talking to people who at least on some level get it. Then look at verse 33. Peter, talk first, think second. Let's camp out. Let's make some tents. One for Moses, one for Elijah. It's not entirely as dumb as it sounds to us. Because the Jewish belief was that at the the Feast of uh, Booths, that they would build these tents and they would remember that they lived in tents. But there was also to the Feast of Booths for the Jewish people an end times understanding. That they, they were looking to the end. They were looking toward the Messiah who would come. And so cut Peter a little bit of slack. Yes, Luke says he didn't know what he was saying. But he, he's kind of on the right track here. You know, booths and maybe we could build the tents and maybe this is the end. He's trying to piece it together. But God basically says from the cloud, Peter, zip it. And he says to Peter and to John and to James and to Jesus, verse 35, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Verse 34 tells us that these guys were terrified. Matthew makes a point to say they were terrified. Mark makes a point to say they were terrified. Luke makes a point to say they were terrified. They're freaking out. And the voice from heaven says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when they heard that, these Jewish guys, this is my son, they didn't think about all the nonsense we think about when we hear the word, the son of God. They thought immediately about Psalm 2. Psalm 2. That's what came to their mind. The son will inherit the nations. He'll be the king over a kingdom that includes all peoples and all tribes and all languages. They heard, this is my son, and they said, Psalm 2, this is the guy from Psalm 2. The rod of iron ruling the nations. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in his wrath. This is the guy. He's right here in front of us. In fact, he's been right under our nose for months, and we had no idea. As soon as it starts, it's over. It ends. Luke says, verse 37, the next day they come down the mountain and they are met by a mob, a crowd of people. And this is a, a raucous mob. There's a lot of excitement. Out of the mob comes a father and the father says, I have one son and he's sick. He's possessed by a demon. The demon causes him to have seizures and I need your help. I brought him to your disciples and I begged them to help but they couldn't do it. Jesus has been on the mountain. The nine get left down below. You kind of feel for the nine right here. The nine have just been on a preaching mission. We talked about it in Luke, where they went out and they preached the gospel and they healed the sick and they cast out demons. And they did all of that. 
And they didn't come back worried about it didn't work. So here comes the dad. My son is sick. He has a demon. Where's Jesus? Well, Jesus is up the mountain. But we're here. Don't worry. We've done this before. We just got done doing this. We'll cast it out. And you can just almost wonder if they went in turn. Andrew, did he go first? Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Judas, no one can cast it out. Mark tells us in his account of this story that while all of it's happening, the scribes are watching. And Mark tells us that when Jesus comes down the mountain and he's met by this crowd, the disciples, the nine, are arguing with the scribes. So the scribes don't like Jesus and his buddies, and they're watching this whole thing unfold, and they see the nine can't do it, and as soon as they fail, they jump all over them and say, look, you're a bunch of losers. You have no idea what you're talking about. You're not able to do the things you claim to do. Where is this Jesus guy anyway? And they're just all over the nine, and the nine are arguing back, and they're saying, oh, buddy, we've been on a preaching tour, and we cast out tons of demons we know how to do this well you weren't able to do it here and in the middle of it there's the father his son is sick and has a demon and no one can help or is even interested in helping they're just fighting and finally Jesus walks down the hill and the father runs to Jesus and I love what the gospels say elsewhere Jesus tells the man that he needs to have faith and he says I believe but I need you to help my unbelief Because this has not gone well so far. And just instantly, Jesus is able to do what the nine failed to do. He heals the boy. Demon is gone. The boy is well. Luke says this in verse 43. Look at it. All were astonished at the majesty of God. Of course they were. They just watched the nine try to cast the demon out. They've seen what the demon had done to the child. They're amazed. Look at verse 44. All of them were marveling at everything he was doing. They're blown away. And then Jesus, look how Luke says it. Jesus, not to the crowd, but to his disciples. Everyone's amazed, and Jesus looks at his 12 buddies, and he says this. Let these words sink into your ears. In other words, you boys better be paying attention. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He's predicting his death. He did the same thing if you look at Luke 9 verse 22 last week. The Son of Man, there's that title again, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. I'm going to die. The Son of Man is going to be handed over to men. Now, if you're Peter, James, or John, or you're one of the nine, how do you hear that? Peter, James, and John, you've been up on the mountain, and you have seen Jesus in all of his glory, glory that has always been, that is now, that will always be. You've caught a glimpse of the supremely glorious son of Psalm 2, the king that will rule all the nations, and you say, what, you're going to be handed over to men? What are they going to do to you? We just saw you up there. What are they going to do to you? And if you're the nine, you just found yourself completely powerless to cast a demon out. And Jesus walks down, walks right into the situation, bang, he does it. If you're the 12, you're saying, the Son of Man, in all his glory, the one who defeats demons with ease, you're going to be handed over to men? 
What? And Luke tells us this very simply. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They couldn't put it all together. In fact, Luke says, goes further and he says it was concealed from them. In other words, it was not the time for them to understand it. And they were afraid to ask Jesus about this saying. Here's the, the takeaway in this story as I've thought about it this week. Three simple ideas. Number one is this. According to John and Peter, the written word of God is more certain than seeing Jesus in all his glory. If that doesn't make your head explode, I don't know what will. But John and Peter, up on the mountain with Jesus, later they write books that end up in the Bible. One of those books is 1 John, and you can jot down 1 John, there it is, might even be on your outline, 1 John 1, 1 to 3. We're not going to read it, but John says this, we saw Jesus, we touched him, we talked to him, he was right there, we experienced all his glory. You don't have to do that, you just have to listen to our testimony. You don't need that kind of experience, you can trust what we're telling you. Peter takes it even further, 2 Peter 1.16. Peter says, and he describes the whole transfiguration. We saw it. There was a cloud. There was a voice. We were there for the whole thing. And Peter says at the end of that, verse 16, we have something more sure, more certain, more trustworthy than seeing Jesus in all his glory. We have the word of God. We have the prophetic word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, you may think, and I may be tempted to think, <laughs> I don't know. There's some stuff in this book that's hard to trust. I just wish I could see the guy up on the mountain in all his glory. Face changed, clothes like lightning. That would do it for me. Well, John was there and Peter was there, and they say, you don't need that. You have this. And what they're saying is, if you won't listen to this, you won't listen to that. If you won't have faith in their testimony, in the prophetic word written down, inspired by the Spirit, it doesn't matter what you see. You can trust God's word. Second application, thought of application is this. Jesus temporarily laid aside his glory by becoming human to seek and to save the lost. The Bible talks about Jesus emptying himself. It doesn't really mean that anything was taken away from him, but it means that something was added to him, and that is humanity. And for a brief few decades... The glory of Jesus that is supremely and incomparably glorious was veiled. Glory that he had always had, glory that he will always have, it was hidden from people. And the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they got just a glimpse. But what you see in this story and what you see in every page in Luke, what you see, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11, is that Jesus humbled himself by becoming a servant by becoming one of the creatures that he made in the beginning in his image so that he could walk in their place, live their life, obey for them, and die their death on the cross. He humbled himself to do that, to give you life and to give you hope, to seek you and to save you. If when you think of Jesus, all you think about is the baby in the manger, or all you think about is a bloody man hanging on a cross. Or maybe all you think about is a cool guy on your t-shirt. You've missed it. That's not him. That's who he was for a brief moment, the baby in the manger. 
the man dying on the cross. He doesn't ever need to be the cool guy on your dopey t-shirt. He temporarily laid aside his glory, glory that is incomparable, that is supreme above all others, and he did it to seek you and to save you. You say, well, what am I supposed to think about? Not the baby in the manger, not the man on the cross. What am I supposed to visualize? Luke just says this, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. John describes it later in the book of Revelation. You can read it for yourself. But when these guys saw it and when John saw it in Revelation, they were terrified. He laid aside his glory by becoming human to seek and save the lost. Last idea is this. Circumstances do not change the truth about who Jesus is and what he is up to in the world. Your circumstances do not change the truth about who Jesus is and what he's up to in the world. Listen, when they're up on the mountain and glory breaks through and the guys see Jesus as he truly is, as he always had been, as he always will be, when they experience that, that's the Son of Man come to seek and save the lost. And when they get down to the bottom of the hill and all heck is broken loose and the dad is mad at the disciples and the disciples are mad at the scribes and the scribes are mad at all of them and there's a a big royal rumble going on and Jesus walks right into the middle of that chaos, that is the Son of Man come to seek and save the lost. And in not very long in the Gospel of Luke, we get to the part where Jesus is handed over to men to be put to death. And when that happens, it's the Son of Man come to seek and save the lost. From the glory to the chaos to the cross, nothing changes about who Jesus is or what he's come to do. And sometimes in our life, we get so confused thinking that our circumstances, our struggles, our trials, our tribulations somehow change who Jesus is or what he's doing in our life. None of that has changed. That's all circumstance. Jesus is the Son of Man come to seek you and to save you. Let me pray. We'll wrap it up. Father, we're grateful for your word. And we come to this story, I come to this story, and I'm almost at a loss for what to say, for how to process it, for how to think it through. Father, the the truths in this passage are just more than our brains can take in. And we empathize with the guys coming down the mountain who don't say anything to anybody. But what do you say? Father, give us a true picture of the Son of Man. Help us to understand and embrace the reality that who He is and what He has accomplished is never changed or diminished or hindered by our circumstances and father help us to plant our feet on the solid and trustworthy word the bible that you have inspired father we don't want to chase an experience we want to chase you by humbly coming to your word And Father, we pray for those who may be in the room with us this morning who don't know Jesus, have never trusted Jesus, have never put their faith in Jesus. And Lord, we want them to do that today. We want you to open their heart to the truth. Father, we're going to take 
a few minutes at the end of our service to worship and to sing and to reflect on your word and to meditate and to pray. And as we do it, we pray and we ask that you would direct our affections and our hearts toward your son.